Welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. I'm Sean Borstrock, and on today's episode, I'm chatting with Kanyoch McLeod, the Hebridean baker. Kanyoch is from the Isle of Lewis, the furthest north of the Outer Hebrides of Scotland. There is no doubt he loves baking and the Hebrides, both of which led him to launch the Hebridean Baker. He did this to share his love of food and the island, foraging and motivating his followers to learn a little Gaelic. He lives by the old Gaelic saying, there is a time for everything. And it is this that inspires him to embrace traditional baking, photography and telling tales of the island. Falcher Kanyoch, and thank you so much for joining us. Kanyoch, welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. It's great to see you, even though nobody else will see us because it's only audio. <laughs> Falcher Sean, great to be here. So excited to, to, to be on this and to have a chat with you today. I normally set the scene, but this scene is going to be really difficult to set because where you live in the Outer Hebrides is so scenic. I mean, how, how do you describe where you live? Well, I'll say this, Sean. Um, I'll tell you a wee story to start then. Uh, I don't know if you remember the first minister of Scotland, Donald Dewar. Uh, he, he was the first first minister of Scotland and he came to the island and uh, as these politicians do, they go and visit folk around the island and he came upon this uh, lady who was working in our croft and he said to her, don't you feel remote? And she replied, remote from where? And he pondered that and then spoke about it quite a lot. And I, I believe in that. We're, we're far away, but we're not remote. We have beautiful landscapes, wild, um, a very unique to even to Britain, a very unique culture and language, which I know we'll talk about. Um, but I think I'm one of the luckiest people in the world that I can live in the Outer Hebrides. Yeah. Well, that's an invitation to everybody. <laughs> Sounds like the perfect place to be. It is. I, I wanted to ask you a bit about yourself and what it is, you know, what you do for work, um, how the Hebridean Baker came about. So let's start with um, the first question. Uh, what do you do for work? Uh, well, I am in a very lucky place that I love being the Hebridean baker, but I do have a very contrasting work life. I've actually worked in sport for the last 20 years, uh, starting uh, as a sports journalist. I was living in Moscow, working for the, the Moscow Times. And then when I moved back to the UK, I started working on more of the commercial side of the sport and worked at Celtic Football Club, uh, the Scottish Football Federation. And then actually I moved into tennis. I used to run Davis and Fed Cup uh, for the International Tennis Federation. And since then, over the past uh, six years, I have been working on a development project with UEFA, which is the European governing body for sport. And they send me to developing countries around the world and I help professionalize the sport, mostly off the pitch. So what I'll do is I'll travel with uh, a professional coach um, and they will often do the on-pitch activities. So coach education, player pathway. Uh, and while I will look at how to create 
a structure to the organization, looking at making sure their board structure is correct, that they have the right chief executive in place, uh, and also how to run an organization. Um, so it's really rewarding work, Sean. There's something about it that you come away feeling that you genuinely have made a difference. And that's what kind of keeps me motivated in what I do. So there couldn't be a bigger contrast of that work <laughs> and um, the Hebridean Baker. The Hebridean Baker, uh, yeah, I think I, I still pinch myself every day, Sean, that this has this has happened and that I'm in this place where folk like yourself want to talk to me about it. It's 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 really is a dream come true. So how did that how did it start? Because it's recent, isn't it? It's a year or so. Yeah, it's relatively recent. I have for about maybe 10 years. I've been a passionate baker and, and cook my whole life, but a very passionate home baker. And um, during lockdown, like many of us, wanted a, maybe a creative outlet uh, when we couldn't travel and, and, and go on adventures like maybe we many of us uh, do. And I looked back on this thought of becoming uh, the Hebridean baker. And actually, for me, it was a conduit to talking about the Hebrides, talking about the Gaelic language, our culture, identity and landscapes. And food seemed a great conduit to make that happen. Um, and I started on TikTok about just under a year and a half ago, and since then, I've had 15 and a half million people watch my videos, which when you're from a village of 30 people, it's quite hard to compre comprehend. Why did you decide to start on TikTok just as a matter of interest? Well, um, I had joined TikTok as, a, as many, of, many people do in the beginning, just watching the content. And once you get through the lip syncing and dancing, um, the algorithms actually direct you to things that they think you would enjoy. So I started to get a lot of creators who were bakers, chefs, um, Scottish people who were passionate about the, the landscape and photography. And I was a bit in awe, actually, of how creative these people were being in one minute. Uh and I just wanted to give it a try. Genuinely, my first uh, video it was <laughs> it was for a ginger loaf because my partner Peter that's his favorite uh, his favorite bake, and a couple of his friends had asked for the recipe, and I thought, well, this maybe is an easy way to 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 show them is to put it online. A few thousand people watched it very quickly, and. Um, I just started to enjoy it more and more. I did Gaelic lessons, kind of, uh, kind of more, kind of travel logs going up the hills with uh, with our wee dog, and more than anything else, what I wanted to display was just my normal life, what I do on a what I enjoy doing on a day to day basis, and baking is obviously a big part of that, and I'm just so pleased folk folk have enjoyed it. Mm. Yeah, well, it's an amazing journey, isn't it, to to think that, you know, like you've said, there are 30 people in the village, but there are tens of millions of people who are peering into your life. And they seem to, um, I, I keep wondering why, what has interested them. And, um, you know, there's, there's definitely not one thing, but I think um, there's a... 
there's a saying, <clears throat> there's a saying in Gaelic in, a, in our language, it's Beri Blas Erloas, which is the Gaelic for, I guess, um, there's a time for everything. In other words, just slow down and enjoy what you have. Uh, and that's sort of what I've tried to portray in, in, in the videos and the stories I, I've created. It's just all I'm doing is the things I enjoy doing, and I hope others will do the same. Mm. So what's the most exciting thing then about the two, these two different parts of your life? Yeah, I think um, when it comes to my work, working in in sport and in development, um, there's a number of rewards for me. I've always loved traveling, and I've been a passionate traveler all my all my life. Um, but there's certain countries that maybe aren't often on the beaten track. I don't think I would often be going to. Gabon or Ethiopia or Uzbekistan. And so the fact that work allows me to experience the people, because it's predominantly the people, you know, that's where I get the most reward from is, is chatting to folk, uh, eating the food, uh, you know, driving from the airport and seeing, seeing the landscape. That is, I think for anybody that is so rewarding. Uh, in that way, uh, and coming back and getting messages from them saying, you know, we've Im implemented this project, or I can't wait for you to come back and see what we've done. It's there's that sense of reward and, and achievement which um, really motivates me to continue, which is great. Um, when it comes to the Hebridean Baker, uh, the, there's always been three things that I've wanted folk to do. The first one is to try my recipes because um, my recipes are very achievable. <laughs> um, you know, they're not complicated. And so anybody at home, I hope, can give them a try. So I wanted people to try the recipes. Okay, you say that. Aha. Uh -huh. Oh my goodness, you've made Aunt Bellac's stuff. <laughs> Sean, you've just turned into my hero in, in the last five seconds. That looks like a really good duff. For those for those who are listening, going, what on earth is a duff? It's uh probably the 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 Hebrides' most famous traditional bake. On the mainland, they call it a clouty dumpling, uh, which many folk will know. But a duff is simply a boiled fruit cake, but it's famous for having a skin which either folk love or hate. <laughs> so I wonder what category are you in, Sean? Yeah, I don't mind it, but it's enormous. Yes. I, mean, I just, you know, it's like, <laughs> that's huge. It is huge. But you know, the, the best thing about it, so the recipe that you have there is from my Aunt Belak, who is, um, Belak is the Gaelic for Isabella, and she is 93 She's been making the same recipe for nearly 80 years. Isn't that amazing? And um, it, it, th this recipe can, or this bake, it's everything from, people use it as wedding cakes, traditional wedding cakes, to, you know, heading out on the fishing boat and having something for, for lunch. But the best thing, Sean, so the first night, or even the first two nights, people see it as, as dessert. Um, but the best thing is the next morning when 
you have it as part of your breakfast. Now, I know, Sean, you're vegetarian, but for those who aren't out there, the most wonderful thing is, is frying it in with your bacon. Oh, what? a okay. dream come true. <laughs> Maybe not for you, Sean, but think of your version of that. <laughs> Well, I've got vegetarian bacon, Perfect. so I could try. It's not going to do the same. <laughs> I don't know if it'll do the same. <laughs> doesn't have the fat. And in actual fact, in, I used vegetarian suet in this. Yeah, me too. I, I use vegetarian suet, so that's okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. But it's 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 my favorite treat. But I even I don't make it as good as my aunt Bellock. But uh, she she really is my hero. But you said about the you know what I was hoping for definitely for people to bake, and for people who maybe haven't been comfortable baking at home to try things. So that's that's great. The second one definitely is to come and visit the Hebrides. Um, I was actually on the ferry home from Alapul to Stornoway a couple of weeks ago. And this we're up up on the deck. So that's when you're allowed to, you know, have the mask off and people can see you. And um, this lady tapped me on the shoulder and said, are you the Hebridean baker? And I was like, yes, I am. And she, she had traveled. She's, she was English from the south of England, and she said, I've been watching your videos for a year, and I've dreamed of visiting the Hebrides since your first video, and I've arrived on the ferry, and you're sitting on the ferry with me. And so I felt elated. Then finally she did say, to be fair, I did recognize your dog shot as first. <laughs> and I, so that kind of knocked me back down to earth. Um, but to to have people visit the Hebrides because of what I've shown, that's that's a dream come true. So what inspires you then? Um, I think we are very lucky here in the Hebrides that we, we are inspired by, firstly, our landscapes. They're... They're quite dramatic, the, the landscapes of, of, of the Hebrides. They're harsh, kind of foreboding, often dark. <laughs> you know, in the wintertime, we'll have three, four hours of, of daylight. And then the summer, we'll have 23 hours of daylight. And so the change in this real extreme change of landscape and, and imagery around uh, really does inspire me. But I think what, what I'm really passionate about is uh, the language of Gaelic. It's very, very important to me. And how that contrasts us to, makes us unique compared to other parts of the world. Um, there's only 60,000 people in the world that speak our language. And so it's, it's sometimes nice to be unique like that. In your book, you talk about tradition um, you've spoken about your aunt who's 93 and she's been baking the same thing since she was 13 <laughs> or 10. Um, how important is heritage and how much does that influence uh, the way you, or what you, how does it influence the way you bake? Yeah, I think, um, I think it does a lot, Sean. I think it really does because uh, actually one of my favorite uh, cookbooks uh, is by F. Marion McNeil. It's the Scots Kitchen from 1929. And she, even in 1929, she felt that there was, there was a potential that traditional recipes and the stories that go along with those recipes might be lost. And so she went around, she was from Orkney, so from the, the very northern isles, and she went around Scotland 
collating the recipes and stories. And I've really enjoyed uh, delving into that book a lot. I don't know if I'll ever get to that level the way that F. Marianne McNeil did, but um, I want to make sure maybe in a modern way that folk use the great ingredients that we have as uh, as an island and as a country of Scotland as well that influence the bakes uh, that I do every day. You mentioned the ingredients there, but what ingredients are on the island? Are there any ingredients? <laughs> because you also talk about foraging, and I'm thinking, well, what is there... Because the weather is so extreme. Yeah, the, uh, the foraging is great on the island. Actually, um, the the great thing about uh, a lot of of berries is what they don't need so much as heat, but they need light. So uh, brambles or wild blackberries grow abundantly. Uh, strawberries and raspberries grow abundantly as well, wild strawberries and raspberries as well. Um, we also forage for seaweed and make a lot of recipes from the seaweed along around our shores. Uh, wild garlic, uh, wild leek grow very well um, in the early, kind of late spring time. And so we're very, very lucky indeed that uh, even in, uh, in, as you say, maybe somewhere that doesn't have the most fertile of lands, we still have uh, a lot of produce. Um, and uh, as well as that, you know, we have whiskey distilleries and <laughs> and whiskey can give you a pretty good flavour too. So not everything has to come from uh, the, the, the ground, you know. <laughs> well, indirectly, it does come from the ground, doesn't it? Well, you know that the, you know, the, the Gaelic for whiskey is Ushkebehe. And Ushka is the Gaelic word for water. And Beha is the Gaelic word for life. So in Gaelic, uh, whiskey is the water of life. Wow. Um, and you tend to use quite a lot of, um, uh, if I may say, alcohol in your recipes, because <laughs> there was um, somebody directed me to a um, TV uh, um, segment you did the other morning and uh, you poured half a bottle of gin into the <laughs> into the was it no it was about half a bottle of whiskey into the mincemeat you were yes. making <laughs> um there was a lot of mincemeat though Sean to be fair but it did oh, okay. <laughs> but it did look a lot I did have that covered quite a bit um but what do you know what it it's it wasn't intentional but at the same time you get such wonderful flavors coming from uh, alcohol, but obviously once it's cooked, you burn off the the spirit in a way. So what you're getting is the flavour rather than the uh, the alcohol. And we have such amazing distilleries uh, in the Hebrides. Um, I was just visiting uh, Jura, the island of Jura, which is just off Isla, and they have a wonderful distillery there and and, and great whiskey. Um, and obviously on our own island of Lewis and Harris, the Harris distillery and the beautiful Harris gin bottle that uh, nearly is as valuable as the as the gin in the bottle. Um, so, yeah, it, it wasn't intentional, actually, to have such such uh, alcohol, so many alcoholic bakes and, and treats. But, you know, I don't think there's any harm too much, Shawnee. You've got access to your ingredients, not all of them, but yeah. some of them. Um, it's all very local. Um, you're inspired by the heritage of um, other bakers or cooks. Do you come up with your own recipes? Are you an inventor? Um, 
I like what what I love doing. I think my favorite thing to do is to put a Scottish twist on a traditional recipe or a classic recipe. That that is something I absolutely love doing. Um, but it's also um, pulling recipes that may not have been seen for for many years. But as I said, particularly ones that have stories. I was making a Scots flummery recently. I mainly just for the name. I mean, who doesn't want to try a Scots flummery? And seemingly Flora MacDonald was halfway through a Scots flummery when she was arrested for helping Bonnie Prince Charlie <laughs> escape. Oh. <laughs> and I think, well, if that's your last meal before going to prison, that's not too bad, you know? And so things like the Scots flummery, the Athol Bros, which is, it's a bit like a kind of 15th century uh, Bailey's Irish cream uh, with you soak oats and whiskey and cream and all these wonderful things. And... Uh, I would say being an inventor isn't my absolute priority. It's more to make sure that these maybe forgotten recipes or these recipes won't be forgotten uh, and the uh, ingredients that I use um, are seen as ingredients to use in, in modern baking as well. Now this is a perfect opportunity to just talk a bit, a bit about luxury. Do you think of what you do as being a luxury? Um, what I feel, uh, personally, it's, it feels like it's very luxurious for me, but what I wanted to feel for other folk is that it's, um, day to day. I want them to, to sense these, uh, ingredients that feel maybe exotic to them in some cases, like uh, a gin from the Edra Hebrides or a, a, a whiskey from a windswept uh, inner Hebridean island like Jura uh, or the best oats or I'd get my flour from a mill in uh, the most northerly mill in Scotland. Um, I want people to kind of see that and want to try it. Uh, and make it part of their kind of day experience and for them to feel like it's a treat because it definitely feels like that to me. But then what I want that luxury to feel for others is accessible. What I want is that my luxury becomes their luxury but accessible uh, in a way and that that would, would, would make me feel very special if people would sit there and, and think this is such a treat um, but it's one that I can, I can make. Because I'm very much of the um, opinion, and I am quite opinionated. <laughs> you know, luxury is, is when we define luxury in the world in which we live, it's not actually defined by us, it's defined by these huge conglomerates. That's a fair point, yeah. And they their aim is just just sell more product. You know, for me, making the duff was a luxury experience because I took a lot of time. Yes. Um and I kind of thought the ingredients are good ingredients. You know, I didn't go to um, the cheap store down the road yes. to buy everything because I bought good ingredients because I am a firm believer that good ingredients results in a better product um, with everything. I absolutely agree. Yeah, and you're, you're right. That's a big, that is a big part. You're nearly, um, you're, even though you asked me the question, you are much more eloquent in the answer uh, that I would love to give. And you, that is exactly what maybe I was trying to portray in my answer, um, is 
the the, the luxury of time of baking, uh, the the luxury of gift as well, because often with with bakes that you are asking people to try them, uh, so there is elements of luxury that. Uh, but you're right. To some people, luxury has to be aspirational. Um, maybe making the recipe was aspirational because it was a challenge for some to make to to make it. Um, but it's certainly it's it should always be an experience, uh, a luxury, I yeah. guess. You know, all those things that we often lose sight of are the true luxuries. Yeah, there's a there's a big thing I learned relatively recently that I, I sort of wish I, I knew a long time ago. And it's the concept of actually it's kind of love language and how you show your care and and love to other people. Um and f- for me kind of um, you know, there's there's verbal, there's physical, there's gift, and there's actions. And actions for me are a very big part of, I think, exactly what we're talking about there with luxury. Um, because you have spent the time doing it. You've bought the quality ingredients, uh, your, the, the finish, the look that you want. Uh, and people often exclaim, you know, they're like, wow, this is delicious, or I absolutely love this uh, bake. And I hope that's that's a, a part of luxury for me as well. Yeah. I mean, does the, your environment influence how you might think of luxury? Uh so your physical environment where you are. Yeah, I think I think I think it does. I think it does. Because um if I look at kind of how I grew up um, and what my mother and father did. So my father was a lobster fisherman and my mother was a Harris Tweed weaver. Uh, And that's two products which to the outer world, I guess, is seen as luxury. You know, if you were given a lobster fresh from the Hebridean waters, and if you were to be gifted uh, Harris Tweed uh, in a beautiful jacket, uh, then those are luxuries. And for us, that is that is our industry. That is our life. That is our hard work um, that created that. And so our landscapes, probably unintentionally for us, created luxury for other people. What's really what's really important for us is that the produce that you're talking about is being made the same way as it was 50 years ago. So Harris Tweed, the production hasn't changed. Uh, the way we fish hasn't changed. Uh, the way we um, look after our sheep and our cattle hasn't changed. So as the world has changed and developed, we our traditions have stayed the same and our produce has stayed the same. Uh, And I think people aspire to that in a way. That for them is luxury, that they know that they can find out the weaver's name that that created it, you know, that kind of thing. I go back to that kind of word, um, kind of the experience. I think that's a big part of luxury uh, when you learn firstly about the product, but being able to visit and learn from the person who is creating that product 
Um, and the same way, as I said, that's been done for the past 50, 100 years. You know, my my mum uh, came back to the island um, to weave and she she did that with her brother uh, on uh, Hattersley looms, the, the classic uh, loom of Harris Tweed. And um, to think that there's people today doing exactly the same thing around the island. I mean, that's quite, you know, a unique situation. Um, and I just think that, you know, I see people when they, they come to the island and they learn about, uh, as I said, it could be everything from the Stornoway Black Pudding to the Harris Tweed or the Harris Gin. Um, it inspires them to, to, to purchase the way that maybe other folk are inspired to purchase the newest handbag or the, the best watch. You also talk about, you know, stories, <laughs> you know, the stories that have such a big impact on you and your life. And that also brings a, a slightly different dimension because of the storytelling. Yeah, the, uh, I definitely got my storytelling from my father. Uh, he could tell quite a tall tale or two. And I was very fortunate with the book that I was able to tell some of those stories. Um, one in particular uh, about the day my father met the Queen. Um, and <laughs> I don't want to spoil it, uh, really, but the, the punchline of the story is, and that was the day my father gave the Queen crabs. Um, and <laughs> you might need to fill in the blanks between uh, between the start and the end of that story. Um, but storytelling, I think, is a big part of the experience um, that I want to portray because it's an identity that, as I said, many people don't know about the Hebrides. They may have never heard the Gaelic language before. They They don't know what legends that we have or adventures that folk from the islands have done. So telling those stories for me is, is a big, big part of my passion for sure. There's this definite aspiration to get back to back to the wilds or back to, to living a simple life. And the, the, the folk that hear about how we live say that seems like the biggest luxury in the world. We have a friend who has an island up in Finland, um, and we went there. And again, no water, running water, no electricity. You had to get on a boat to go and get um, to go get the petrol to <laughs> um, fire up the whatever it was. Or, but exactly that, and that was probably one of the best experiences I've had in many years is being remote. Yeah, um, not being not and no Wi-Fi even. Yeah, there was nothing. Yeah. Um, um, and I think you're absolutely right, is that, you know, our perceptions of luxury has, has changed so much. And it's those simpler things which you appreciate more that are becoming, you know, it's not a, that are becoming luxuries. It's not a, you know, £10,000 handbag anymore. I'm not saying I wouldn't like a £10,000 handbag, Sean, but uh, <laughs> uh, I think I would take a few more days uh, in the inner cabin before before the handbag. <laughs> um, I think it's really interesting that, you know, things have changed. You know, our perceptions of life have changed and our, it's, you know, what we want from life has changed. And that is what's redefining how we perceive luxury because it's not necessarily 
those expensive goods anymore. It's much more, as you've said, it's about an experience and what we can gain from from that experience. I think the issue I have um, with how luxury is being defined is that it's based on monetary value. Yeah. And and that's why these conversations are so I think important and I think interesting to have because you know luxury is not always about the thing you go and buy. I think um, I don't know if it changes with age or not. I don't know. Or or do you come through different periods of your life and look at luxury in different ways as well? So I I feel very fortunate that. I can see luxury in, in, in different experiences or, or in different parts of my life. I want to do, um, I know I'm, I'm now looking at the time. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about um, your baking and the island and sustainability. Or are you conscious of um, the impact you have on, on the planet? Are you more conscious about being sustainable? Um, I think I am. And uh, I think it's interesting. I was recently on a... TV show talking about about this um, during during the the COP conference in, in Glasgow, and what it meant to me, or or did I think I was making a difference? And I have this real contrast in life of sometimes I'm flying around the world, <laughs> and how do I balance that out? And the first thing is this concept, as I, as I spoke at the start about um, homemade is always best. You know, uh, cooking and baking at home are actually one of the first things that you can do uh, as, as a family or uh, as an as a, as a, as a individual, as a couple. I actually, this might shock a few people, but I've never had a takeaway in my life. <laughs> I've never had a takeaway in my house. I don't see that as a, some people see that as a luxury. To me, it doesn't seem like that at all. Uh, and so f- for me, firstly, it's, um, as I said, we grow a lot of our own products at home, the vegetables and fruits, um, either I can get from uh, our own garden or um, friends and family around. I was picking up some eggs from my neighbor this morning um, from her chickens. And so there's, there's, um, and my brother has 400 sheep. So I get all my meat from, from, from home. Uh, so I think, uh, that w- we are used to being, I think it's more normal for us. I mean, when I was growing up, I think, I mean, Stornoway is our main town and we'd maybe go there three or four times a year, you know? Uh, like, it wasn't something that we did uh, all the time at all, you know? Um, uh, so uh, f- from from that point of view, I think... It's it's a, a kind of normal part of our lives that we have now realised that we are doing something, but we, let's let's make sure we keep doing it. So I think the simple things that you can do is even a little bit growing your own produce, trying out your own bakes and and recipes, eating at home and making that a luxury. I think that that. That for many people would be special because home baking is home cooking is always best. Yes. My last question, as it always is, um, is what is your luxury? Uh, my absolute luxury is, and we don't get the chance to do it all the time 
as often as we, we would want to. But uh, I'm very lucky to have uh, a partner that I love very much in Peter and uh, a wee dog that you've probably heard barking, but uh, it's very much part of the family. And spending a day, the three of us uh, digging in the garden, me sitting there with lots of, of cookbooks around me, uh, thinking what to bake, uh, maybe a trip out in the canoe around around the islands around us. Uh, and again, it comes down to to time. Uh, it's 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 a big part of what I would like is to enjoy the things. I go back to that Gaelic saying, Berry Balas Erdoas, there's a time for everything. Enjoy what you have around you uh and 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 see that as reward for for your hard work. Kenyach McLeod, thank you so much for joining me on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Thank you, Sean. It's been a real treat, a real luxury. Thank you for listening. Thank you to our sponsors, Intellect Books. Don't forget, you can catch up on all our previous episodes at inpursuitofluxury.com or your chosen platform. We look forward to seeing you again on the next episode of In Pursuit of Luxury.